Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. So my guest today on the Cappuccino is Jamie Wall, who's the author of Last Time We Spoke, It Was Facing the Hacker. Uh, this time it's the 100 Year Wars, uh, All Blacks versus Springboks. Uh, a little bit about Jamie, straight from his website. Uh, <laughs> hi, I'm Jamie. I grew up in Wellington, New Zealand, and I'm now based in Auckland as a rugby writer. He's been covering rugby and league for the last four seasons for a few websites. Plus, he's been an active player of both for about the last 25 years. I know what it's like to be at the bottom of the ruck, have to throw into a line out <laughs> five metres off your girl go line and get worked over by a guy twice your size. Sounds like my rugby career, just quietly. Uh, he's covered the All Blacks as a touring journalist since 2017. He's published four books, including the bestseller. I guess they're all bestsellers by now. Uh, Brothers in Black. I know that uh, Facing the Harker definitely was. He's attended the 2019 Rugby World Cup in Japan and covered the All Blacks campaign. He's become a TV sports pundit and he got to take the Red Philly Shield home once as well. Uh, so, yeah. So, um, like I said before, before we actually even started recording, congrats on this book because it's absolutely brilliant. Um, I loved it. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw you right under the bus before you even get started, Jamie. And I'm going to give you some different topics. And what I want you to do is pick the all black or the spring block that you think that first comes to your mind. Now, before we okay. start this, yeah, before we start this podcast, just to let the listeners know, this is purely Jamie and I's point of uh, views and opinions. Okay, <laughs> so it's not the opinions of the New Zealand police or the opinions of the NZR view or anybody else. That way we're covered. Okay, right. Speed. Okay. Speed. Right. Let's do it. Okay. Speed. Who's the first person you think of from the All Blacks or the Springboks? Oh, sorry. I thought you were saying speed, isn't it? It's a speed round. But uh, speed yeah, yeah. Uh, right now, off the top of my head, um, Christian Kelm. Integrity. Uh, Francois Pina. Skills. Um, Dan Carter. Leadership. Ooh. Um, Mornay Duplessis. There you go. Good work. Yeah. Kicking, kicking ability. Mornay Stone. Yeah. See, because after reading the book, I had never, ever really thought about Don Clark as a, an amazing player. Uh, yes. but there you go. Yep. Yeah. Uh, tackling. Richie McCaw. Grit. Um, Skulkberger. Senior and junior. No. <laughs> no. Morals. Uh, not the people in charge of NZ Rugby in the yeah. last century. No, no, okay, yeah. morals. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, tough one. Um, Tanu Manga. Yeah, good word. Okay, so when we last chatted, literally as you got out of the police vehicle, you said, you're beginning to talk about this book. You said to me, I'm thinking about doing yeah. this book, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, yeah, that'd be really good. What's the method to bring it to print because it's not like you just sort of sit in your room for a couple of days and go, oh, look, there's a almost 400 page book on a hundred years of, uh, well, it's history to be fair, isn't it? Yeah. So what's, what's your process? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, uh, I, I reckon that um, this, the, the actual writing of this book started when I first watched the Springboks play way back in 1994. And it's something that I mentioned in the introduction, one of the first big games that I went to. Yeah. And ever since then, I just started soaking up all the information that I could about it. And I've sort of had the idea for this, this book in the back of my mind ever since then. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to do something around the 100-year anniversary? And then it turns out that because of the circumstances of the last couple of years, um, it's also the 100th game that they're mm. going to be playing against each other as well. And so when I, when I kind of lined that up last year, which was yeah, about the last time we saw each other, I thought, well, I have to get this done now because we're not going to get another chance to mark 100 years. No. Um, and so I went away and I just read up as much as I possibly could. I soaked up as much information as I could. I went down to the, spent a good bit of time down at the the New Zealand Rugby Museum down in Palmerston North, which yep. is a great spot if you're ever in Palmerston North. Uh, and just focused on a way of doing it that would be an engaging and fun read uh for both people who are familiar with the topic and the ones who aren't and try my best to do that i'm not i'm not uh, i will 
I will be honest with you, it's it wasn't the idea that I originally had because my original plan was to actually go to South Africa and, and do a bit of a, uh, a tour around there and do it from the perspective of um, going around discovering things and, and meeting people. But obviously, uh, COVID stopped mm-hmm. that happening. But yep. um, I'm really happy with the way that it's turned out uh, anyway. And um, it was just about figuring out what was relevant and what resonates with people these days and yeah. uh, and making it into a way that was just really readable um and i like to i hope i hope that i've done it done that no, no uh, mate you've nailed it because th- there was to yeah. be honest when i started off i looked at it and i was like oh yeah 1908 rugby stories you know they're great but when you look at um and it was something that i hadn't realized You've, and you noted it really well in your book there, the size of some of those players, like some of those players were like 55 kgs, mm. 60, 60 kgs. They'd be destroyed if they played in a, in a current game of super rugby, for instance. Where, where did you go to get that information from? Because it's not something that's sort of widely available, is it? Yeah, I mean, you, there's a lot of books being written about, um, you know, tours as they happened. Um if you look back in history, you'll see that after uh, an All Black tour or a Springbok tour to New Zealand or Lions or whoever would come over, they would generally have someone who was following them around, pretty much sort of noting down everything they did. And so you'll find, and I've got this big stack of them at the Rugby Museum. So all you've got to do is just go through, find the year you want. Go, okay, 19, 1921 when the, when the Springboks first came here. And then you've got all of their statistics. Uh, just all on one page, height, nice. weight, where they're from, ages. It's it's fantastic. It's such a fantastic resource. It's it's like a little almanac basically that you can yeah. go to that'll that'll tell you all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, how many hours of research do you think it's taken for this book to come about? Yeah. Ooh, <laughs> good question. Um, I mean, like I said, it's it's something that I've been thinking about and reading about since 1994. So I mean, yeah sort of thousands of hours i guess yeah. but uh for, from when i agreed to to get it done uh until now i'd say yeah i mean it was i was working sort of like 40 hour weeks on it like uh over summer um so it was a full-time job really. yeah because I, I couldn't couldn't quantify the the amount of hours but yeah. it was a lot because i'm looking at like the different chapters in it and as i'm reading them i'm like there has to have been at least maybe two to four books written on every single era that you're talking at the very minimum. So it's yep. a lot of information to condense. And of course, when you, get to, when you get to 1981, it just explodes. Everybody's got an opinion or everybody's got a book on it. So it's, yeah. yeah. Um, I and also, it. also it's, um, it's, it, it's important. I think that it's not just about rugby either. There's a lot of research went into what else was going on in New Zealand and South Africa and actually the rest of the world at the time. So I did a lot of like historical research into like sort of geopolitical yeah. situations because that's the really interesting yeah. part of And it. you were setting the landscape in those chapters as well because yeah. a lot of it, it would have either just been the All Blacks have just arrived in South Africa or the Box have just arrived here and we're playing rugby. But like you say, you've got the landscape set. Um, mm. I guess that Remy Wera Library seen a lot of you, I'm guessing from your Twitter account. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I used um, Remy Wera Library. Yeah. uh quite a bit because it's nice and quiet and it's got good air conditioning during the summer um yeah. and uh yeah it's a good spot up there so i'd have yeah. my daily routine where i'd get up and i'd go for a run and go to the gym and head up there and sit down and after a while you start to notice the same sort of people in there every day so you're saying hello and yeah so i felt like a little office i had up there so it was a, yeah it's a really nice spot nice what's your cutoff point when you're writing do you get to sort of like the three hour stage and go now I've got to go and get a cup of coffee or I'm leaving this for today or. Uh, I have a word count that I, oh, okay. I follow every day. So, so what I do is, uh, so the book where you're sort of aiming for like a mark of about 60,000 and you yep. want to be about 10,000 words either side of that. And so if you go, well, if I start in on this date and I do a thousand words every day, uh, it's going to take me until this date to do it. And so that's about two and a half, three months. Yeah. And so I just do my thousand words every day. And then sometimes it'd take me a couple of hours. Sometimes it'd take me a couple more, and then uh, but you just got to stick, stick to that routine and just yeah. really stick to it. And even if you're just writing a thousand words of 
and then you're not that happy with it you just get it out because you know you can, you'll have a good day where you can go back and refresh it yeah yeah and you so know that's, that, that that's the that's my uh, methodology i was gonna say and you know the editor's gonna send it back if it's no good for you anyway exactly yeah. yeah so not wrong okay all right so uh the big 64 million dollar question politics and sports should they mix <laughs> um i don't even i don't even think it's a it's a question of the uh, it's they politics and sport to me are uh, sports an extension of politics you mm-hmm. know um that's why they play the national anthem before each game it's yeah. it's why the prime ministers and presidents are at these games it's uh it's why we're you they're literally playing for the country um and so each team represents what that country is about um and so i don't think you can separate them i mean you can try um but i think you'd be very naive um to be able to separate them and um and and it's it's not just a rugby thing either you've seen across history and it's, it happens every day um you know where yeah. uh, people because it's such a platform um for people to to use uh, uh for, for their political views uh both athletes and supporters um themselves so it's to me it's it's not even a question it's like they go they absolutely go hand in hand and they're holding those hands very tightly together yeah yeah that was the thing that was apparent to me because i've always sort of been like oh no they should never mix and they were and when you set the landscape with some of the tours i'm like how could you possibly in good conscience even begin to think that this is a good idea but for some strange reason they did so what i'm going to do is i'm actually not going to even mention the beginning of the book i'm just going to go to about 1956 because i want people to go out and buy the sure. book i just don't want them to listen to the podcast and go oh it's no point buying that book anymore <laughs> uh, so 1956 we have the all blacks on the back foot having lost a series in 37 and 49 they've um beaten the british irish Lions in, in 1950 but lost to wales and france in 53 mm-hmm. and 54 and the games as you say in the book were well supported but absolutely brutal um, head high tackles, punches, kicks that would probably get today's players suspended for an entire season. Uh, you have an all-black captain being dropped after the second test, Pat Vincent. You have uh, a man called Kevin Skinner returning to the All Blacks after two years of not really playing any rugby whatsoever. And basically his main job is to punch the crap out of the spring box. Uh, you've got Eden Park's biggest crowd ever, which I didn't realise about. And Danny Craven's weird beliefs with... <laughs> bath towels uh it's just like uh yeah was it tempting just to write a book on that tour because it sounded amazing yeah shocking uh, and bloody weird all at the same time i i could i could have um but I, I don't think i would have been able to do it justice because uh a lot of what i was drawing off on that was from another book called yep. um old heroes by warwick roger who was uh he's passed on now but he was he was a kid when that yeah. tour tour happened and so i think it's definitely one of those things we kind of had to be at to, to really sort of understand i like looking back on that that period because i don't think we'll we'll ever see anything like that again in new <laughs> no. zealand and yeah. um and just the amount of pressure and intensity that was put on the all blacks um for that that series that had been building up for like seven years beforehand. It was, you, you can only really equate it to a world cup um, yeah. these days. Uh, and you could sort of see it in the 2011 uh, world cup, the amount of pressure that was on the all blacks there. Uh, and, and also just the way society was um, back then that, that rugby really was the only real pastime that, that people had. And it was had such a hold on, New Zealand society back then. It just what makes it such a special series, um, but also such a unique uh, one. And also just, you know, and you mentioned the politics beforehand, it was kind of the last time, pardon me, the last time that the All Blacks and Springboks got to play each other without that being a massive issue. Yeah. Um, obviously, it was an issue for people in South Africa at yep. the time, but it hadn't really crossed over into, you know, the Springboks representing that regime um, yeah. as yet. Uh, and so after that, things start to kind of change quite quite quickly. 
yeah, you're not wrong because uh, obviously in 1960, moving on, we've got the the Sharpeville police massacre where hundreds of people are killed and wounded, uh, basically because the police open fire and in two minutes there's people basically shot in the back as they're running away. Um, the pro the South African prime minister is shot in the face twice in an assassination attempt, and yet two months later the All Blacks arrive in that country to play a third tour of the country. And again, like you say, from the very beginning of the book, we have non-Māori players uh, not being selected because it, in the guise of it's it's best in their interest for their own safety. And that's the quote that you've got from the New Zealand Rugby Football Union. Uh, and they're also a direct defiance of the United Nations as well. There's protests going on all around New Zealand. The big thing in this book, like you said at the very beginning, you sort of said it flippantly, but I just... One of the things that I just couldn't understand was it just seemed like the NZRFU just couldn't read the room because every time mm. there was something huge happened, they were like, okay, we're going to go on tour uh, or we're going to get them over here. And it was just like, if it was anybody else, if it had been any other sport, and especially in today's climate, everybody would be looking at one another saying, what the hell is going through your heads? Um, why do you think they just couldn't read the room? Yeah, I, I think that uh, for them, obviously, as a as a sporting body, their their main motivation is for sport to yeah. happen. Yeah, and and I think if you can equate it to anything these days, and it's a pretty different topic, but I think like baseline, it's it's this the same as the debate we're having about whether the Olympics should happen or not. Yeah, and you. To, to the people who run the Olympics, there's kind of not, a, not even a question of it. So, no. well, of course, they have, they have to because, you know, we are the Olympics. Yeah. And for the NZRFU back in those days, it was like, well, it's rugby. Like, it's what New Zealand does. Mm. And also by then, by 1956 to 1960, these, the All Black Springboks uh, rivalry had established itself as the most important series that mm -hmm. the... The All Blacks played. Um, it was an unofficial championship of the world because the World Cup didn't exist back then. Um, and they are they were over history the most dominant team. So every time they played each other, it was for the title of being the best in the world. And so I think for administrators back then, being better at rugby or being the best at rugby superseded, I guess, any sorts of like uh, moral you know, um, or, you know, kind of like, uh, uh, and sorry, and also their, their supporter base were very much in agreement with them that like, mm -hmm. well, this has nothing to do with what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all we want to do is go over there and play rugby. And so they felt kind of vindicated and validated by that feeling that they had. Um, but you're right, they should have read the room because they would have been able to understand that times were starting to change. By now it's the 1960s. Mm. And that decade, you know, New Zealand was unrecognizable from, New Zealand of 1970 was unrecognizable for the one that in 1960. Yeah. Uh, due to, you know, the way that culture had changed. And so if they'd had some sort of maybe younger people who were sort of a bit more in touch, they maybe could have handled that a little bit better you have to remember though in the 1960s the guys who were making decisions were very old like you know mm. they'd be you know they were all war veterans who had all fought, fought together they're from such a long generation ago that yeah i'll cut them a bit of slack uh and in, in the way that they made decisions because you know the, the world that they grew up in was so different to the one that, that we're in now yeah um so so yeah, I mean, I think that's if if I could put myself sort of in the issues, I can I can sort of understand why. But at the same time, it's it wasn't very hard to pick up a newspaper and see everything that was happening in the world then, and think to yourself, like, man, are we doing the right thing here? You know, because mm. mm. like you said, with the Olympics, I mean, with the Olympics, yeah, we've got COVID going on. We've got huge financial penalties for Japan if, from the IOC and everybody else and prospective sponsors and everything else. And look, let's be fair, in the sixties they probably had very minimal financial concerns. So it really was sort of a bit of the old moral compass going haywire. And like you say, they basically, had, well, from the impression I got was that they basically railroaded it and sort of said, well, it's rugby first because it's the people's game and this is what everybody wants. Is that what you think? 
Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. so. I think they saw themselves as a, a as someone who was in charge of of something that had it was a way of entertaining uh, the public yeah. and a way of taking their mind off that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, I, I can understand how they felt that way. I don't agree with it, but yeah. uh, I think that's where they were coming from. And at the same time, as well, that it was. Like I said, the guys running the game were from an older generation, like a much older generation than the one mm. that was actually, you know, growing up in New Zealand at the time. Like, do you think there's a generation gap now? It was even more pronounced back then. Yeah. Um, and I think that a part of that generation gap happened because it was like, yeah, you had a whole bunch of guys that went off to two wars and came back and now their kids were growing up who were now in their sort of 20s and 30s. And they were the ones saying like, Hey, stuff's not fair and we shouldn't do this. And if you're someone, if you're a war veteran who's gone off and watched his friends die and, and yeah. had that whole experience, you'd be sitting there watching them in this pretty comfortable kind of lifestyle that you've, you've provided for them and saying like, what are you complaining about? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's, I mean, it's a little bit off topic from maybe it's a bit of a broader oh, no. so, socio uh, societal uh, issue that we're, that we're covering here. But I think that's probably their reasoning um, behind that. So then in 63, you have the league tour, which I knew nothing about, uh, Yeah, which was a bit of a debacle. And then 65, the box turn up in New Zealand, and they are absolutely awful. Um, and I've got to thank you on a personal note here as an ex-front rower. I <laughs> knew that Heine Muller was a South African, but I never actually knew when he was about. And after reading your book, I did. And I, I don't know the man personally, but I've certainly run uh, laps in his honor many a time. Um, oh, so have I, so have I, don't worry yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah, oh, the pain. Yeah, um, <laughs> and then, of course, you've got the old Wiley Fox, Danny Craven, who states that Mary, when he's on the actual tour, states that Mary would, would be welcome in South Africa one day and that black players would wear the South African jersey too once, one, one time as well, uh, only for that both to be rebuked by the Minister of the Interior in South Africa. Do you honestly believe that Craven was on the charm offensive there, or do you think that he really believed that deep down? Because let's be honest, Danny Craven was a bit of a player, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. He was an ultimate politician, I guess you could say. Yeah. I mean, I like to think he he does, and I guess he was right. Like yeah. they did. Um, Maori players did get to go to South Africa, and black players did get to wear Springbok jerseys. So whether he like literally believed it or not, he was right. Yeah. Um, so, but I think I think he was very much telling people here what they wanted to hear, and it's kind of interesting that out of all of the administrators, that the guy from South Africa is the yeah. one who can kind of read the room, yeah, and at least you know sort of steer the conversation to be like, actually, no, you people have a point. Um, you know, I would love to uh, be able to sort of make everyone happy here. I'm doing the best I can to to include you know, black players and Maori players and, and touring sides. Uh, but, you know, we have the government that we have um, in South Africa. So, uh, I, you know, the optimist in me likes to believe that he, he was a decent bloke and he wanted to do that. But, of course, the cynic says to me, well, like, you are very much just trying to just keep these relations open because you're smart enough to understand that this isn't going to happen for much longer if you don't. Because by then, by this stage, they'd been booted out of, uh, South Africa had been booted out of uh, FIFA, so they weren't playing football no. against anyone. And the and the Cricket Council, uh, what's now the ICC, had had banned them from playing cricket against anyone. So that's their two big sports, two out of the three big sports. Yeah, done. Uh, and the Olympics, sorry, they've been yep. um, uh, shoved out of the Olympics. Yeah. So rugby was kind of all they had left, and so he had to be at least kind of diplomatic in that situation to to help that to help that happen. And like I said, it's ironic that it was him that was the one that's doing it. Whereas the New Zealand administrators were very much just digging their heels in and saying, no, there's no, we're not doing anything wrong here. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And then in 1965, obviously you have uh, prime minister Holyoke who basically says, Hey, look, racial equality is basic to the New Zealand way of life. So in 67, he states again, that we can't be represented in any sphere by a group chosen by racial lines because South Africa is playing the, no Māori players again. So the NZRFU declines the tour and they go to UNK, U, the UK instead. Why do you think other prime ministers didn't step in doing the same like Holyoke did during the 60s? Do you think it's that World War thing again or do you just think 
again, they just weren't really interested. Um, yeah, good, yeah, good question. I mean, I can't say I'm a massive um, expert on Sir Keith Holyoke, but he definitely seemed like a guy who, like a, a, a prime minister at least, who um, was was probably worried, you know, about like most politicians, like worried about re-election. Yeah. And it's 1967. It's the height of the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, you know, the Cold War. We've had, we'd had the Cuban Missile Crisis not long ago. And, you know, he could tell that times were changing, I think. And, and he was right as well. Like, he, he, he just comes out and says, we're not going to play a part in this because um, it goes against what we believe as a country. And it's interesting because he was a national um, yeah. party uh, prime minister. And contact with South Africa from then on uh, for, through the 70s and, and 80s is very much drawn up a lot uh, between the two major political parties in New Zealand. Yeah. So you have National Party was essentially in favour of, and the Labour Party wasn't. But mm. a lot of people don't remember that the first party and prime minister to say no, we're not going to do this was in, um, Holyoke and the National Party in 1967. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then in 1970, South Africa introduces the sort of well, they're not really introduced it, but they have honorary whites. Uh, so the South African Rugby Board grants uh, Māori players honorary white status, which in itself is another story. Um, All Blacks um, touring is seen as an, an endorsement of, of this, and Hart forms up. Uh, there's names like Meads, Lahore, um, Going, Kirkpatrick, Williams are named in the team. Um, but Ken Gray, who is a 24-test veteran, retires due to his opposition to apartheid, and still today is rated and it's not just by one or two. I, and again, I hadn't really known about him until I read the book. And then I started researching. And I thought, wow, this guy's amazing. He's still rated as not far short of Colin Meads and possibly the best prop in rugby history, according to somebody like Stephen Jones, which, let's be honest, we don't normally agree with Stephen Jones. But um, that's that's not a, a shonky ref reference. The tour's littered with more acts of thuggery. You have Colin Mead's famous broken arm. You've got brawls and elbows to the face and the All Blacks lose the series. What's the shift? Because three years prior, they're not going. And then all of a sudden, the Māori players get granted honorary white status and it's all back on again. It's just, it seemed like a really big jump. They'd gone from no, we're not. And then, yes, we are. Yeah, again, it was um, uh, it was more the union that was pushing that. Yeah. Um, because... They'd acquiesced to uh, what the government wanted. Uh, they didn't have to do what the government wanted because yep. you know they are a they're not a government organisation. No. Uh, but they, they the, the prime minister basically said to them like you can't go, and so they said okay, so. But by 1970, I think there was a lot of there was a lot of pressure coming in from Craven over in South Africa, just being like you have to kind of make this happen. We're not going to come to you, but you can, yep. you can, you can come to us. Uh, and they just, I think it marked a turning point in the whole thing where they just said, well, we don't really care about what people who oppose us think. Mm. We're just going to do it anyway. And it was also, um, yeah, you mentioned, you mentioned Ken Gray as well. He's a, you know, he's a pretty big part of this story because, um, you know, I mean, it, it, He's, he's pretty well widely known in Wellington where I, where I grew up. There's a lot of things named after him down there. Personally, I'd yeah. like to see the stadium named after him because I just think he embodies everything that's great about being an All Black. You know, he's yeah, a great yeah. player and he's, yeah. and, he's, and he's a man of really strong moral convictions. So. But I think also because they allowed the Māori players and Pacifica players because they had Brian Williams mm-hmm. um, go on that tour as well, they, that's how they kind of justified it. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, well, because up until then, the opposition to the tour was the slogan, no Māoris, no tour. And then say what? And then they could turn around and say, well, we actually, we can. We can bring Māoris now. So therefore, problem solved, right? Yeah, well, no. no. But, yeah. but that's, that's, what, that's what the turning point was in that, in that situation. And then they could say, but we've ticked our boxes on this one. So we're going to go play rugby. And if you don't like it, well, yeah. to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. And then... Obviously, in 76, it really starts to get, to use a bad word, fugly, because the All Blacks tour South Africa again. 29 African countries don't go to Canada's first Olympic Games in Montreal because of this. 
after Norm Kirk is advised by the police in 72 that a South Africa tour would engender the greatest eruption of violence this country has ever seen by the police. In April 73, Kirk requests that there's no tour to the New Zealand Rugby Football Union. Um, but uh, as Keith Quinn said, they were given the cold shoulder at the Olympics by basically most of the international community because they knew what had gone on. And Muldoon in 1975 states rugby is basically free to do whatever they want with South African rugby. Um, how did they get it so wrong? Like the other stuff you can kind of understand, like you say, the guys were coming back from the war. They looked at the earlier generations and everything else. But this just, you've got the Olympics being boycotted because of tiny old New Zealand and South Africa. Yeah. You've got, um, like Keith Quincy's in his book, you know, he was saying that when New Zealanders at the Olympics and people were basically giving them the cold shoulder or abusing them. And the PM basically saying, oh, well, don't worry about it. Off you go on your way. Yeah. I mean, can you, can you imagine uh, what it would be like? I couldn't imagine what it would be like to ever go somewhere and try and hide the fact that I'm a New Zealander. Yeah. And that's what, uh, I mean, this is a conversation I had with Keith when he was, was, you know, I went around to his place and he told me all about it. And he said that they, he said that after a couple of days of that, they just started saying that they were Australian. Yeah. Which Which, is incredible. Like when would you ever want to, (laughs) as a New Zealander want to be considered to be, but that's what it, that's, that's what it took. And you have the situation where a rugby tour to South Africa causes this boycott of the Olympics, which is insane when you think about it. It's absolutely insane that, that, that that's that the All Blacks have that mark on their record. Yeah. Uh, And, and that it didn't stop there. It just like that, uh, you would have thought that that would have been the absolute high watermark of, of the ramifications of what they were doing, but no. (laughs) <laughs> not no. at all in fact it was kind of far from it yeah and it was clear they were playing a political game as well because they knew that the 74 commonwealth games were run in christchurch so yes. if we didn't say anything until that sort of stage we'd be uh, would be okay so yeah just crazy and then obviously you yep. have the the big one in 1981 and 1976 you had the soweto uprising 1977 stephen biko is killed you have anti-communist feeling running sort of beginning to run in New Zealand. Uh, it's the first time in 16 years that the South African team has been in New Zealand. There's a huge divide. Um, you've got guys like Hicker Reid and uh, Graham Murray, who, uh, sorry, Hicker Reid's for it. Graham Murray's against it. Ken Gray, the ex-All Black prop, actually joins an anti-tour movement. Do you think it was something that we're ever going to see in this sort of scale in New Zealand's history ever again? No, I don't think so. I don't think I don't think we will. I think um, I think the only other precedent you could set for it is the nineteen fifty one uh, waterfront strike, yep. um, which I mean you have to be pretty pretty old to remember that <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. if you're if you're involved in that. Uh, yep. But uh, I mean, in terms of civil disobedience, just the amount of effort and coordination and just how many walks of life were involved in the anti-tour movement yeah uh and that year uh was just incredible like from what i've i got i was really lucky enough to get a a a big document um outlining basically everything the entire anti-tour movements um had recorded everything that they did in the lead up to the wellington um test yeah and it was staggering for me it was like a it was like a military operation the way that they they did it uh where they'd have units of people set up um and they'd have dis- diversionary tactics where they'd where they'd send people off so the police would would follow them follow off them. to some yep. place and thin out their thin out their numbers uh and and how they would yeah they would um um sorry protect themselves with, with padding and, and and motorcycle helmets uh, and have designated people who would go to the front. Um, and then even down to the fact that like the one thing that really, really summed it up for me that they got older people involved who couldn't get out and protest. And they said, well, you can still be involved because you can look after everyone's kids who want to go mm. and they'd have these big creches set up in these houses in, in, in Wellington, which was just, it's astonishing. So all these elderly people who, who, you know, didn't want to go out and perhaps yep. get caught in some of the violence uh, could really play their part, and and you know them being able to do that meant that you'd have another dozen protesters out on the streets, which is yeah. which is awesome. 
really yeah. when you think about it. Yeah. Um, what was it like in your family? Because I can remember that's probably the very first rugby tour I can kind of remember. I was about nine, ten. Um, and I can remember my dad's mate and him watching the rugby and uh, my mum and his wife going out to protest against the tour. And that, to me, kind of shows you how much it split New Zealand because it was just some people were, were against, others were for, and, and there seemed to be sort of this yeah, real disparity between. So what was, like, what was it like in your family? Was there any... Yeah, yeah, pretty similar. I mean, it was the year it was the year I was born, so I don't remember it. But um, no, I was, yeah. I, I was, I was alive, and so I was at home um, being looked after by our grandmother, uh, along with my cousins yeah. and uh, my mother's side of the family were out, yeah, protesting because my my um, grandfather was local um, politician. He was very much against the tour. Yeah, uh, so they were out uh, doing that. My dad's side was a little bit more complicated because. His dad was, you know, war veteran and yep. pretty old school, and and he had three older brothers who were all kind of pro rugby. They they just wanted to watch footy, and there's a lot of pressure put on my dad, who was the youngest, as to who sort of which side he was going to yep. be taking. And he he kind of ended up having to do a bit of both. Um, yep. <laughs> he, he protested, <laughs> and then he and then he 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 would go and join his his brothers uh, to watch the game, kind of pretend that he he wasn't involved in the other side of it. So yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, I think, I think it's a pretty common theme among a lot of families where you'd have people who were for against it. Cause it was so by this stage, yeah. the whole thing was so binary, you know, yeah. like it was, you're either, you're either 100% against it or you're hundred percent for it, or at least that's what we like to think yeah. at the time. Uh, and, but what was really, what was really interesting talking to people from the time. And when I was researching the book was that, yeah, there were a lot of people who were like, well, I kind of, I don't agree with what's happening in South Africa, but I want but, to watch rugby yeah. because it's our country. Yeah. But then, and then you'd have people of being like, who are like, well, I mean, I think it's, everyone has a right to protest. Um, but, you know, uh, I, we shouldn't be standing in the way of people who want to want no. to watch rugby as well. So there's a lot of nuance uh, in there. It wasn't just 50% of the people no. One, we're voting yes and 50% of the people voting no. It's, it's very different than that. It's a very nuanced situation. Yeah. Uh, the police create red and blue squads. There's barbed wire set up, barricades and everything else. Did you actually talk to any of the officers from the squads in those research? I know there's been plenty of books written about it, um, but lots of the police officers that I know that were around about that time, you can't get very much from them. And we all know that it's seen as a very dark era in New Zealand police history. I was just interested to see if anybody actually wanted to speak to you no i couldn't get um couldn't get anyone uh i i, I was very much relying on the writings of ross murant who was yep. um obviously the commander of the red squad yep. uh, at the time who's and and he's a very interesting um individual because of course he wrote a book straight after the tour which was very much which it's very detailed and it's got yeah. a lot of good good information about what they did and and how they did it um and it's really interesting reading that in conjunction with the protest um mm. document that i had because it was pretty much you you're detailing the same event from two different sides yep uh so it's very much like yeah like looking at a battle from both, opposite both ends sides, of the map. Yeah, yeah um uh but he very much kind of changed his views over the years and and reading that book and then you read stuff that he talked about maybe 10 years later and then 10, 20 years later. And, uh, after that was, is very revealing, uh, as because he sort of realized like, gee, I don't know if we got this right. Mm. Um, I think, I think that a lot of, a lot of critique is leveled at the police, um, for the way that things went down, but it's interesting. And you noted, um, and when we're talking in the earlier chapter about how they'd warn the government that this was going to be the greatest uh, act of, you know, that you're yeah. going to see the biggest amount of violence. The thing, yeah. And it's interesting that they'd obviously held that view for a good decade before it actually happened. And they'd been sort of preparing for this big thing to happen. And so they were going in with a very, I think, I think kind of aggressive attitude to try and, to try and deal with it right from the start. And then when that game gets called off in, in Hamilton, yeah. um, it's seen as literally as a loss, you know, 
yeah. like the police take it very personally that they mm. couldn't prevent this happening in it. And I, I think I noted in the book that it's like they'd put all this effort into keeping protesters out of the ground and they hadn't really thought about what would happen if they actually got in. Because if yeah. you watch the footage of that game, you can see all the people run on the field and the police can only kind of arrest them one by one yeah. because they're all linked arms. And so they didn't really kind of have a plan. And I think that after that, the response by the police towards the protesters became a lot more ramped up and a lot more um, preemptive mm. uh, to, to, to really kind of stop that sort of stuff happening and to try and put people off um, even attending protest marches rather than to perhaps go to, to, to try and to try and find a more peaceful peaceful way of dealing with it. Um, but yeah, I think I think that, like I said, by then, I, you know, it, it, they it, it reached such a boiling point, and there were so many people involved by then, and the protest movement was so large that I, again, I I can I can understand why the response was the way I was. I don't yep. agree with it, but right. I can understand why decisions got made that way. Yep. Yeah, and when I read the book, like you said, that game was in Hamilton's called off, and Ross Morant, and this is a direct quote from him, says it was a gutless effort by the police, and it's almost like it's almost like uh, the best sort of comparison was like it's like this big massive red rag to a bull, um, hmm. and he he wanted the tour to continue so that the police could redeem themselves. Do you think that that's the point? Because for me personally, as a police officer, and I say this. 16 years after the event was when I first joined. So I don't really know anybody from the era, but for me, that's the part where the police begin to lose their focus after that game. And they just purely become sort of absolutely driven. And these guys have shown us up. So we need to show them up again and again and again, and actually show them who's the bigger dog on the block pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's a really good way of, of describing um, the situation that it was in, which was we need to, we need to reassert our mm. our control over the situation because if we don't, people aren't going to respect the police. Mm. And I, I again, I get, I get that. Um, yep. I think it was it was just just boiled down to just the most base level kind of way of doing things, though. Because if you're gonna if you're gonna reassert the way that you deal with things by literally going out with nightsticks and smacking yeah. people, then you know you're going to be ruling by fear. Yeah, exactly. And that's not the way, that's not the way that policing should, should happen in, in my opinion. Um, and, and so it left this, I think it left a bit of a legacy, uh, you know, especially with, with my parents, um, yeah. you know, about the police yeah. um, and, and about how uh, that was passed down, you know, to, to kids and stuff. And I think it, it probably after a few years, you know, definitely noticed that the police would, would deal with things a lot differently and try yep. and rebuild that relationship. Mm -hmm. And and it's 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 just kind of crazy how how it got to that that point though. Yeah, it that, that, just, that's the main thing for me. Yeah, it just seemed to go out of control. And like you said, uh, Robert Peel, who's seen as like the founder of the modern police, um, one of his basic guiding principles is the police are the people, and the people are the police. And, you know, that's pretty much it. So there's a huge uh, march in Molesworth Street outside Parliament, and coincidentally, where police headquarters are as well. Uh, yes. Red Squad, and, the, and the rugby union headquarters as well. Exactly. The irony is <laughs> yeah. not lost. Yeah. yeah. Uh, where Red Squad basically clubbed their way through the first four lines of demonstrators before they withdraw. Morant later says he wrote about, the, about a victory, as he calls it. By that stage, it was far too gone. It was all just too far gone, wasn't it? For a, and it had basically become... Uh, us and them there was no there was no coming back from that point was there exactly i think that there was um if the hamilton uh moment was the big moment for the protesters um yep. the molesworth street one was the big one for the police because it really the the protesters literally crossed crossed the the point of no return by getting that game called off yeah they they put themselves in a position where they could all get arrested all get dealt with and then the police kind of crossed the line into just like okay we're gonna start physically uh you know harming people that uh in our way yeah and so and it was like 
well, you've just, you've both kind of tipped over um, the edge now. So I think from then on, it was very much anytime there was a game on or anytime there was a demonstration on, people would have just been looking at it like, oh man, we really don't know what's going to happen now. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and it would just keep building up and building up. So yeah, it's, um, yeah. And, and, it, and it reaches this, this, this um, incredible climax that we, mm. that we have in the third test. Yeah. Um, and the weird thing about it was that as a police officer, I'm sitting there thinking, what would a modern day police officer say about this? And then like you say, there's a retired assistant commissioner, Bill Overton, who basically says uh, the problem will be overcome by removing the cores, not the battens, um, which, yeah, I just sort of thought, okay, that's kind of astute. Um, why was the media kind of seen as being so complicit with the anti-tour movement? Yeah, uh, well, good question. I mean, uh, the media is often uh, thought of in society as being more, you know... Liberal. Yeah. Me, liberal. Yeah, and on the side of of uh, social justice, and I mean, I, I would agree with that. That's a fair assumption. Yeah. It's a it's yeah. a profession that draws that sort of pe- pe- person to it, yeah. uh, especially in New Zealand. Um, and I think what the issue was is that people who wanted the tour to happen, and let's not forget, that's a lot of people. That's, yeah. that's a yeah. lot of people in New Zealand that just wanted the rugby tour to happen. Were getting sick of seeing the protest movement, guys like John Minto, Trevor Richards on TV every night. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't, they just wanted to just like get these guys off TV. If we just ignore them, it'll go away. And it's like anything to do with the media, the more sort of oxygen you give a story, the bigger it's going to get. And so for the previous sort of 10 years, you know, this is an ongoing story. This is an Mm -hmm. ongoing thing where, um, you know, we call them, sound bites you know mm, if you were yeah, if you yeah. need a quote if you need a quote about someone from something so in the years leading up you know in 1976 when the olympics there's a boycott going on who are they going to go to of course they're going to go to trevor Richards yeah. and it get his view view on it and so this guy has been in the media on tv the whole time and i think for the sort of average rugby fan who just wants to watch rugby it's like well if you guys if you people in the media didn't give these protesters so much airtime there would be no yeah. issue here yeah uh it's not it's it, to me that that argument doesn't stack up because it's no. like well this this is an issue this is a massive issue yeah, um, of course it is. there's people out uh marching on the street um you can't just ignore that it's it's a newsworthy event so i think that's why um that perception was there of it um also there were by this stage uh people in the rugby media who had voiced uh heard disapproval of it yep. Keith one being the yep. most notable one so you have a guy who's who's, who's commentating the games mm. who doesn't want them to be happening no which exactly. is yeah which is pretty which is a pretty interesting situation um that you've got going on but you know that was his job so he he did it yeah by the same token i know that there were lots of police officers at the same time who were be- also beginning to go what the hell is going on here in new zealand this isn't us this is not what we're about um, and then yeah. obviously we have one of the saddest and probably, well, one of the saddest moments in recent policing history, uh, as well as just New Zealand's history with the Battle of Onslow Road, where mm. there's rioting taking place in normally peaceful streets and protesters dressed as clowns, rabbits and a bumblebee are literally basically attacked by police officers attempting to, who as they attempt to offer them lollies. And there's a cover up afterwards by um, some members of the squad and their commander. Um, the question is, how did we get that whole 1981 thing so wrong as a nation? Because it defines us still probably today, um, but by the same token, there's so many people just look look back on that now. And like you say, you were just a baby, but you look back at it now like I do, and I was nine, and we're just horrified. It's like, that's not the New Zealand that we know. How the hell could that have happened? And what were the people in charge thinking? What what do you do? What do you say about it? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing is, is that it did happen. So maybe, maybe it's not the New Zealand we want yeah. to know, yep. but perhaps it is actually the New Zealand that's there, uh, yep. that, that was there. Because, like I said, you know, there was there's a huge protest movement. You know, there's mm. tens of thousands of people on the street, but there were still fifty thousand people in the ground watching the game. 
Yeah. You know, so this was this was not something that every single New Zealander didn't want to happen. But yep. I think the just the the build up to it and the fact that you had years and years of what we now call, you know, social justice. Yep. Um, and what what then would have been called, you know, like just protesting. Mm. Um, and there was no social media back then. There was no, you know, what we have now. So the, the way to get your message heard was to actually literally go out on the street and yell it out. Yeah. And so you had the Vietnam War, which, you know, was obviously a massive part of mm-hmm. um, a massive change in society, both in, in New Zealand and in the, in, in the US. Um, and that kind of rolled into issues in the 1970s. And then all of a sudden you get people going like, hey, you know what else isn't fair? you know treaty claims yeah exactly uh, let's yep. let's let's start talking about that and so you have the bastion point um occupation mm-hmm. um you have and then you have this ongoing thing happening in south africa where people are going like hold on like this isn't right how are we still doing business with a country that does this to its own people mm. and has done this for years now and we yep. shouldn't be doing this and right. so it just built up and built up and built up and then when the Springboks showed up, by now, and remember your original question is, you know, the sport and politics mix, it's like, well, of course they do, because these this team that's running out wearing those jerseys, they represent that country. And that's so right. therefore they represent they represent what that country stands for. Mm. And you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna take that. And I think that also the way that people looked at it was just so divisive Mm. nobody wanted to see the logic in each other's arguments um and so you just had this like i said it was just really binary yes and no and even Mm. though within those yes and no's you had people going like well yes but i would still like to watch rugby or well i would like to watch rugby but those people kind of have a a point you couldn't really sit down and have that conversation it was just either am i for it or am i against it yeah and then that and, and then that manifested itself with well if i'm against it I have to get out and say something about it and get out on the street. And just the time period that it was and the technology available to people to sort of get their message out was at a point where you could freely kind of get out on the street and, mm-hmm. you know, get the word out. Yep. But at the same time, the, the, the way of doing it was to just, no, nah, let's get together and march down the street. Yeah. Cause a lot of the people I talked to um, who were involved in the protest movement were saying, well, there was protests like every week. Yeah, you know, it seemed if you were a student in a major center those those days, because of course at the same time, universities were clearly places of of where people would get together and, um, you know, get really politicized yep. uh, about stuff. Um, there was a lot of communist groups, a lot of anarchist groups in the in the universities as well, and so people were just really willing to mm. to kind of disobey. I yep. guess is the right word. Right. Now, I'm not going to mention the Cavaliers tour, apart from the fact that, because <laughs> like you say in the book, it's almost an entire book on itself, the Cavaliers. I've sat in the room with some of the All Blacks from that era, and even mm. now you can tell which side of the fence they're on because they are quite clearly not happy with that person over there or the such like. So, the oh, no, we can still talk about it if you want. Like we... <laughs> hey, look, okay, let's go there then, okay? All right, so okay. it splits basically rugby in half it's the start of professionalism uh you have people and you've seen in those recent rugby union talks as well you've seen some people who were shall we say not pro cavalier pop up and sort of say things against the rugby union and the such like Mm. um do you think without it professionalism in rugby would have been another 10 years off or not i i mean i i think maybe not Professionalism probably would have happened around about the same time, but it definitely uh, because the World Cup, <coughs> pardon me, was happening. Um, I think what it did was it started that conversation whereby, like, we've got this World Cup going now. We've had these players getting paid under the table, and then a lot of them kind of come back and say, "Well, I've just got all that money for. Why can't this continue? You know, there's yeah. a product that we've got there." So I think, um, I think, um, yeah, it, it, it probably did. Sorry, it did, it did speed it up. Uh, 
it, it kind of loosened the grip, I think, of of the of who was running the game at the time. Yep. Um, to kind of shit. So, I mean, if one good thing came out of it, the Cavaliers tour was that. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a really interesting what if. Um, I don't mm. want to spoil the no, the, no, the, book, the chapter yeah, that no, I've don't. got, but it's like it, it's a very much um, we call them a oh, when I say we like uh, like a sliding doors moment. You know that movie sliding yep. doors. Yeah, yeah, she, yep, yep. She could she could have gone through the door. She could have not. Like yep. if, if that tour had happened, and had it not, what would have what would the sort of effects of of that yeah. happened? And so it's it's a it's a fascinating little case study of that that um, that that era as well because. Also at the time, um, South Africa was going through. It was like apartheid was at its actual, like absolute height, and the sanctions were at the absolute height. And yep. you, they they've got this war going on um, with Angola to the north, and they're getting secretly propped up by the CIA. And so there's just all this intrigue around yeah. that whole that whole time. And it's just um, I'm like I said, I'm fascinated by, it. and that's why I put that note in the book saying this deserves a book in so many yeah. With that in mind, it was also a bit of a changing of the guard as well, wasn't it? Because if that hadn't happened, it would have been interesting to see if some of those guys would have carried on playing. Um, they basically kind of got dropped after that, um, but it would have been interesting. Like, do you pick Andy Hayden over Murray Pierce, for instance, and that type of stuff? It's yeah, it's for instance, yeah, it's yeah. Just, you know, I think. Um... Obviously, it would have been great to talk to Andy Hayden about this, but unfortunately, he passed away yeah. last year. But um, whether he was actually going to continue on, yeah, any, anyway, because he was sort of getting old by the time. But yeah, um, but I mean, he, uh, yeah, yeah, like I mean, he he, he finished his um, career because of that. Dave Loveridge as well, like yeah. he was he was gone. Um, uh, you could kind of make a case. I mean, I know Eddie Dalton was supposed to be yep. in the All Blacks the next year, but you could sort of making make a case for the selectors already kind of looking over his shoulder, being like, actually, Kirk's probably the guy we want. Yeah. Um, yep. And there, yep. so yeah, yeah, it's it's a, a again like it's it's just the the ramifications of that, and then what it had for the All Blacks for the next period, which was mm. you could arguably one the, the, the most dominant period of all black rugby but in the late 80s mid to late 80s yep. winning the world cup and then going two years three years unbeaten yep um you'd have to say well it's like well it kind of probably showed that having a big clean out um isn't such a bad thing at no. all yep no not wrong okay so i'm gonna put you right on the spot here for the very last question the 1987 Rugby World Cup I have an excellent neighbor who's South African who always reminds me the only reason we won it is because South Africa wasn't there. So do you think that the All Blacks would have won the 1987 Rugby World Cup if South Africa was there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yep. yeah. We're playing yeah. at home. We, yeah, we, exactly. uh, we're yeah. playing at home. We were playing at home. Um, the, the, the Springboks would have had to have gotten through their side of the draw as well. It's not, I think what a lot of South Africans don't, don't sort of take into account is that it's still a tournament. Yeah, You didn't just have to show up and play the All Blacks. Um, yeah. There was a whole bunch of games that you had to play on the way there. Um, we'll never know what the, what the sort of the ramifications of those games leading up. Because for us, it's like, yeah, if, if, if we play England or Wales or Scotland at that time, yeah. Uh, in New Zealand, yeah, well, yeah, of hello. course we're going to beat yeah. them. Yep. Can South Africa do the same thing though? Can they come to New Zealand, which is a tough place for them to play, and beat mm. these other teams? Mm. So for them to even kind of make the final, like that's a question on its own. And then to play at Eden Park in front of a New Zealand crowd, uh, and you know, just hypothetically, if they make if they make the final, are they going to win that one-off game? I don't think so. No. Yeah, no. Probably There's a not. very very good All Black team. Yeah, 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 not wrong, not wrong. Okay, all right, so. The Hundred Years War, uh, All Blacks versus Springboks by Jamie Wall is available at all good store, all good bookstores. I recommend you go and get it because uh, there's so much that we haven't covered off. We haven't covered the healing. We haven't covered the mysterious Susie uh, or anybody <laughs> else for the uh, last sort of, I guess, probably 30 plus years. Um, like I said, it's an incredible read. Um, if you also want to follow Jamie on social media, um, you're on Twitter, aren't you, Jamie? That's right. Yep. yep, yep. Uh, um, Jamie Wall too. Yep. Yeah. And uh, very often my wife will catch me having a chuckle because Jamie's quite open 
frank and honest with some of his comments on uh, sports <laughs> sports that are on television or that he's watching. Uh, so, yeah, I'll be laughing and my wife will very often say, you're talking to that All Blacks guy again, aren't you? So you're known <laughs> in my house as the All Blacks guy, so that's all good. And you, you've also got your own website as well, haven't you, where people can order the books from? Yes, yes, uh, jamiewallrugby.com. Yep, okay. uh, you can go there and you can also see a bit of my work as well on that yep. journalistic work. Yep. Now, I do know that I've had already a couple of people from South Africa say, will the book be released in South Africa? Have you got any idea on that or not? Uh, yeah, you can order it if you're in South Africa or anywhere overseas. Uh, you can order it online. Um, the best site to go to is bookdepository.com. Oh, yeah, there you go. And then just search search either Jamie Wall or The 100 Years War, and they'll be able to get that out to you out there. And it's actually on special at the moment on Book Depository. So, oh, look, there uh, you go. Get into it. Uh, and yeah. the 100th test between the All Blacks and the Springboks happens when, my friend? Uh, September... Uh, September the 25th, I think. Just check it. Um, but yeah, down in Dunedin, um, that's going to be a great occasion. I'm going to be de- definitely down there for that one. Yeah, of course you are. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah September 25th, also nice. last day in Dunedin. And the nice bit about that playing in Dunedin is that is the city where they first the first game was played. So it's almost 100 years to the day and, and almost in the same place. They played Carisbrook back in 1921, uh, playing in the beautiful Forsyth Bar Stadium this time around. Right. Hey, I appreciate your time. Uh, always insightful as always. Uh, and uh, until the next time we catch up, stay safe. Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss his next podcast.